Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody. Dr. Simon here with the show, The Stories We Live By. And today I wanted to talk about the self. Um, I have Barry Rickett with me. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we do a show on Wednesday. What's the title of our other show, Barry? Uh, All About You Radio. All About You Radio. And if you like this show, I think you'll like that show. So come on over. We do it 4 o'clock. Although I think Barry and I may talk about doing it in the evening. Um, I think maybe more people are around in the evening. I don't know. Well, we'll see. Anyway, let me talk about the self. And I, and I may let myself uh, get diverted to another topic uh, at a given point in, in, the, in the discussion. Um, I'll try to make the jump clear uh, of why I move off to this other topic and then see if I can get back uh, to the topic for today. Um, I want to talk about the self because the self is one of the more important psychological components to what any of us are. Uh, We use the word self in a variety of ways. Um, Like I, we use the word I. I am going to the movies. I am speaking to you um, on this show. I am having a conversation uh, with whoever wants to have a conversation, wants to join us with Barry. Um, I am the actor. That's what I experience my core to be, an actor, a thing that, something that does things. The, the, I, the, the self is also me. Uh, it's what happens to me. Uh, somebody speaks to me. Somebody uh, gives me a kiss. Somebody hits me over the head. Someone sends me a gift. Someone takes my money. Um, so that when we talk about what we are as a self, it is an experience we have, a psychological experience of being an actor, an initiator, someone who does things, including make plans and dream and feel and think. The, the thought is that there's something cohesive that generates behavior, okay? Something that we call I. And then there is the, the, the psychological experience that things happen to us, and that is the me. Then there's ownership. There is what is mine. This is my telephone, my house, my program. Uh, I'm walking on my floor uh, so that the, the, the most central aspect of what we are psychologically is the self. Right. That's not too unclear, is it, Barry? Barry? No, I... No, no, I think it's real clear. Okay. Now, the self is always under attack by scientists. And let me go back in history. Before uh, psychologists such as myself talked about the self, people wondered what we were. uh, And basically, religion dominated in the discussion of what we were and what we would today call the psychological would be called the spiritual the soul the soul was the actor the soul was the the receiver of experience the soul did the owning of what had to be owned and people knew there was a body but the body really wasn't as, as important as the soul the soul 
in, in Western religion was eternal. So that when our body died, when dust went back to dust, the soul went back to God, or uh, in some religions, the soul was recycled and, and reincarnated, uh, and, and you could have somebody's soul that became someone else's soul that became your soul. Although in Western religion, Judaism, Christianity, uh, the idea of an eternal soul uh, was the predominant idea. And as science developed, this created all kinds of problems. Well, it actually created problems even back then, but you don't read about it, you don't hear about it. Uh, if the soul was spirit, it was argued, and the body was matter or substance, how does spirit interna- interact with matter? And really, from the beginning, people used to wonder that. But there was this dichotomy then between the spiritual or, the psycholo- or what we would call now the psychological and the body. Scientists changed all of the language. Uh, very few scientists talk about a soul, at least an immortal spiritual soul. Uh, it's not part of science. And one of the reasons many people don't like science is that uh, they reject an idea of a human being is lacking a soul. Uh, it's not enough that we have a mind, but we also have to have a soul. And uh, Barry and I were discussing this, I think, on the other show. I accept the idea of a soul, but not a, an, a soul that is uh, immortal or a soul that has religious connotation, but as a part of the self. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. A, a kind of precious center to the self. Uh, I think people should be treated as if they have a soul, a precious soul. And uh, certain aspects of a human being, their dignity, etc., should never be violated. Uh, which, again, we'll, I'll get to in a little bit. Science uh, uh, changed. The, 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 the philosophers who became the basis of science, like Descartes, struggled with this idea. And Descartes decided that what human beings were was a machine. The body was like a machine. And that the soul, which began to be called the mind, inhabits the body and controls it. And when he was confronted with the, the age-old question of how does this, this non-substance, a sex substance, he said it's connected at the pineal gland which happens to be a gland at the base of the brain, has something to do, we think, with uh, sexual maturity in adolescence. Um, but, but whatever it is, that was the, 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 the seat, the steering wheel, if you will, and that the soul would then control the body by manipulating and tilting and pulling on the uh, um, pineal gland. And this led to all kinds of other problems, such as uh, how does this non-substance interact with the substance of the pineal gland. Descartes wasn't ready to take on the Inquisition in Europe, um, and, and he wasn't about to give up his own religious beliefs, so he kept this idea of soul, which was becoming mind, that interacts with the body, the body being a machine. And many of you who listen to this will have heard of the concept of the ghost in the machine. And that's really where it sat for a while, until biology and medicine really became the predominant force in understanding what human beings are. 
So we are a body that is a kind of a machine, a wet machine, a complicated machine. But what do you do then with the soul? Well, there is no religious soul, so they got, we got rid of it. What about the mind? The mind, which I will now call the self, or, or, or the organized part is the self, uh, represented all kinds of problems, and it still does today. How do we conceive of the self in relation to the body? And what I hear all the time people say, we have a mind in our body. And, and there's, the, there's the problem. The self is in the body. And many of us experience ourselves as kind of, of a little man sitting behind our eyes controlling the body. And that's what we do. It's a kind of a, a Descartes, a Cartesian uh, uh, duality, a mind and a body. And the body can get sick and the mind can get sick. What has happened in recent years is that the psychiatrists and many, many other scientists said there is only the body. The brain is what creates the self, and if we can understand the brain and control the brain, we will understand the self. Therefore, the self, in effect, is, is like the smoke that comes out of a, uh, of a, uh, of a train, you know, a train that, that burns wood or something. The smoke comes out, a smoke comes out of a, a, of a smokestack. It's what's called an epiphenomenon. It has nothing really to do with what's going on in the machinery of the train, but it's there. And you can ignore it because it's what goes on in the burning of the wood or the coal in the engine and the boiling of the water that makes the train go. And so the mind is gone. The mind is gone. And all that we have to do is understand the biology of human beings and we'll understand people. And here's the rub. And here's the complication. If you get rid of the self, if you get rid of the idea of a self, you get rid of the human being. The human body is not a machine. It's a much more complicated, important thing. All animals' bodies, by the way. My car burns up gasoline. It's a machine. My body doesn't burn food. It makes food into the body. The whole idea of homeostasis is far more complicated than anything that any machine does. And one of the great mysteries is how does the brain produce psychological activity? And philosophers, and I tend to read a lot of philosophy because... It's people who try to struggle with these complicated ideas that, that make me feel as if I'm getting some kind of a, a hold on these complications that will allow me to say, yes, there's a body, we have a brain, the brain is important in its activity to what we are, but we also have a psychology which wouldn't exist without the brain but can't be reduced to the brain's activities that the self is psychologically real, it doesn't have to be physically real. Now that doesn't make it some kind of soul that, that floats around and has no substance. It doesn't have to be that way. One of my favorite writers is Thomas Nagel, who wrote a wonderful philosophy called The View from Nowhere. I'm not going to go into it. And he argues that the day that we understand how brain activity produces psychological activity, 
will be the biggest revolution in physics that we've yet known. Because we have no idea how the human brain allows a self to come into existence. An I that's capable of saying, I own the brain. I have the brain. Now again, shut down my brain, there's no self. I don't believe there's anything after my brain dies. That's the end of it. That's the end of me, except of me in the memory of those who know me or care to remember me. But I, as the actor, the me that has things happen to no longer exists. But on a psychological level, what has to be respected, what I demand to be respected, what I demand we respect of each other is the self. The self and that core, which I still call the soul. Are you with me still, Barry? I am. I am. Anything you want to talk about? I, I, I see. I'm so glad you're there. Because to no, me, I this is all second about... nature stuff. Yeah, I, I think this fits into the, you know, the statement William Calvin said, um, "Who am I if I'm not my memories?" And yeah. I think you just tend, without your memories, without your brain, without knowing yourself, um, it's really you're not there. There's nothing. You're not there. One of the most terrifying of all diseases is Alzheimer's. Because in Alzheimer's, you lose memory. And, what the, and, and, and the development of the child self comes with an accumulation of experience. The things that have happened to them that they remember and how they then the self organizes these memories into the stories that we live by. So that the self is the teller of stories. The me is what uh, is the experience the feeling of what happens that gets organized into stories. Okay. And so I look at development, psychological development, as something that occurs along the line that as we develop and as our brain gets more complex, as our memory gets better, as the number of experiences that we live through and the kind of experiences that we live through then get organized into the story, a self kind uh, emerges, a self that, for example, thinks good of itself. I am the hero. I am worthwhile. I am loved, and I deserve to be loved. And there are those around me who deserve my love. Rather than, I'm a monster, and everybody around me is a monster. And I don't deserve to live, and they don't deserve to live. Okay? If I listen to the news, I hear an awful lot of that. How about you, Barry? This business that, you know, this run, this man who ran into uh, um, uh, the, the Holocaust Museum or the people who shot the doctor. If you listen to the language, and this language is now filling the airwaves with people I would think would know better, talking about these people not as people, not as human beings, but as demons. Demons that are a threat or a danger to those around them, and therefore have to be exterminated. And in many parts of the world, this kind of demon speak is what predominates. So that what you don't have are human beings, what you have are something less than human, something that is not precious. Now, 
in the world of psychiatry, the self doesn't exist. They're convinced that if you can only tweak the brain correctly, then, then, then you're going to have the right kind of person. And I want to share with you, and again, uh, uh, this has me so upset that I, uh, I almost changed the show, but I'm going to spend a little time on this because I feel it's so important that the public has to begin to understand the philosophy that underlies the idea in so much of medicine that we're a machine uh, and that if you can only fix the hard drive of the machine, unhappiness will be gone, confusion will be gone, all kinds of things, uh, individual kinds of, of idiosyncrasies and differences can be just smoothed over, worked out, and all will be well. And what sits behind this, uh, uh, this philosophy, which may be well-meaning, are the drug companies that are pouring billions and billions of dollars into seeing to it that the public doesn't take the idea of self-seriously, <coughs> but simply looks at the, the, the body and anybody who's unhappy, confused. Uh, you know, if you pray to God, uh, you're religious, if God answers, you're schizophrenic, and therefore there's got to be something wrong with your brain. So, what's been going on the last few years is a very aggressive attempt uh, uh, sponsored by government, and here's, Barry, I think where you, your, your favorite thing comes in here, to begin screening all the people in the United States, particularly children, for mental illness, and treating them before the mental illness appears. You with me? There? I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. So let me read this. Um, th this originally started. Oh, serve an error. What the heck is this? Okay, I came back. Are you still with me? Something happened. I'm I, here. I, I went offline, but I didn't lose my uh, uh, show. Okay. I'm here. Some years ago, when George Bush, and I don't blame him because all the government officials are, are in corral of this idea. Uh, in the thrall of this idea. Um, when, when George Bush was governor, they created in Texas something called the TMAP. TMAP was a um, Texas medication algorithm prescribing protocol. And the money for it was put up by Janssen Pharmaceutical. All right? And what they did was try to get all the children in Texas diagnosed as to whether they had mental illness or not, and then treat them so that they would grow up to be good human beings, and treat them with drugs that Janssen prescribed. And the, the, the money put into this is so enormous, and the way the public has now swallowed this idea that the self only becomes distorted, if you will, because the brain that, that is underlying the, the self is, is distorted, uh, that it's so hard to even get people to question this. I've been called crazy, again, so many ways for trying to get people to understand. And I use the analogy of a computer. The programming of the computer won't exist without the hard drive. But if you don't like the programming on your television or on your computer, changing the hard drive doesn't do anything but shut down all the programming. And that's what these drugs do. 
What these drugs do and other psychiatric treatments do is damage the programming capacity of the brain. They work by distorting programming, by distorting the underlying powerful, wonderful uh, uh, computer. And I don't even like to use the word computer because there's no computer that in any way matches what the human brain is capable of doing. And so this, this uh, program started to grow. It was fought. It grows. It grows. Um, and the psychiatrists are now uh, planning to screen everybody. Um, there was a move in Florida that we did stop that the legislature put up with the backing of the, of the, um, of the uh, drug companies and the psychiatrists to screen all pregnant women for depression and treat them. Now, the anti-abortion people were behind this because this was an attempt to slow down the rate of abortion uh, among women. So you had to have a screening by a doctor before you can get an abortion to demonstrate you weren't psychologically, mentally disturbed. Now, I don't know any of you know 1984, but this is 1984. This is 1984, big time. The control of the self by government. Now comes a new program. Uh, the NAS, the National Academy of Sciences, calls for preemptive intervention to prevent mental, emotional, and behavioral disorders among young people. The NAS report recommends rigorous mental screening, followed by pharmacological treatment intervention with highly toxic psychoactive drugs, antidepressants, and antipsychotics. Even as the authors acknowledge, early detection program will identify as candidates for mental illness some people who are merely persnickety or shy or eccentric. And they want to do this all over. Right? And they want to create an, a, a, a department, the Department of Health and Human Services has already established an early detection and intervention for the prevention of psychosis program, EDIPPP, to implement the report's recommendation. The problem, there is not a shred of scientific evidence to support preventative cures for psychosis. The NAS report is replete with expressions such as biomarkers for mental disorders, when not a single genetic, chemical, physiological, radiological, or other biological marker has been identified to aid in the diagnosis or predicting treatment response of any psychiatric condition in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. The manual itself says, criteria remain a consensus without clear empirical data. The behavioral characteristics specified in the DSM-IV remain subjective. We are under assault. And what's really under assault are the, 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 uh, the self of the developing individual. These drugs are unbelievably damaging, unbelievably damaging. They've developed talking points um, and was launched and funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which has invested $16.9 million in this promising program. EDIPP program sites are in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Davis, California, Glen Oaks, New York, Portland, Maine, Salem, Oregon, and Ypsilanti, Michigan. And it's no surprise to any of us that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is an arm of Johnson & Johnson.
the parent company of Janssen, maker of the antipsychotic drug Respiradol. Janssen is being sued by the Texas Attorney General for bilking the state Medicaid Medicare budget and for having improperly influenced the development of the TMAP, the Texas Medical Medication Algorithm Prescribing Protocol. We are the parents of our children, not the psychiatrists. Nobody even can define mental illness in physical terms. But to think that we can prevent it with these terrible, terrible drugs would be a medical catastrophe beyond what I can think of, but worse, a psychological catastrophe for the development of a brain capable of creating memory and the way in which the self of all of these children that are going to get caught up in this will be defined as defective, as sick, as permanently on these damaging drugs that cause terrible weight gain, that cause all kinds of very, very serious, serious problems. So I've done my rant on this. I should go back to the original topic, but I, I find this so unbelievably important to talk about and this isn't opposed by the liberals or the Repub or the you know the conservatives. Everybody seems to want to agree that we should help those who are mentally ill. Nobody asks what mental illness is, and everybody seems to agree that mental illness should be treated with these chemicals, with these these toxic, dangerous chemicals. Uh, and and all agree. And so this may end up being pushed as part of. Uh, President Obama's, um, uh, you know, his medical transformation plan uh, of trying to bring better services at lower cost to uh, the public. And it sure is hell easier to uh, work on somebody's brain with a drug, with a 15-minute interview by a psychiatrist, than it is to spend the necessary hours to try and change the story that some developing child lives by who has been physically, sexually abused, neglected, uh, um, psychologically abused, or deprived of the kind of experiences that go into the developing of an adequate, competent, well-skilled self. So that's, that's what it is for that. Do you have any, anything to add to that, Bear? No, I I think that uh, you're right, and I think that it's a very dangerous, slippery slope that they're going down on, and and I think that if you combine that with what's happening in Florida with the the foster kids, uh, yes. you know, it's 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 definitely uh, it's almost like everybody wants the easy way out, you know. Yes, we're not we're not trying to cure the patient; we're trying to make life easier for the people around them. Yes. And we're trying to build up profits for the big corporations because, you know, that's where we all have our money for retirement. Um, but as you say, we're taking the easy way out. The problem is, even in the short run, this is not the easy way out. All of this really even runs against the common sense that most people have. Uh, but what it's also saying is that parents really don't have the knowledge or the right to raise their own children. Uh, they, they have already a study that was initiated at the Yale School of Medicine where they gave teenagers, high school teenagers, these psychiatric drugs to prevent their uh, emerging schizophrenia. 
uh, there's a statistic here that's really quite incredible um, about how accurate the diagnoses of these things are. Where is it? Mm, let me find it. I had it and I lost it. Um, I'm reading here about the horrendous damage, the things that we know, that everybody admits. Oh, here it is. Um, as was revealed at the advisory committee hearing, screening or diagnosing pediatric bipolar or schizophrenia is mostly wrong. Of 3,000 suspected childhood schizophrenia cases recruited for a study, only 110 proved to be valid. And by the way, you know who does the screening? Not medical doctors. We don't have enough medical or psychological personnel to do the screening. They're going to hire and train non-professionals to do this who will sit with a list of, of questions, open-ended questions, and write down the answers, and then those answers will be fed into the computer, and somebody will make a subjective determinant that this kid is or isn't going to be mentally ill. And, and, and this is not where we're going. This is now where we are. This is where we are. And to me, the assault on the self that all of this philosophy represents is very devastating and very depressing. Because we don't say to people, you have to struggle to do the right thing. You don't have to grow up to be a good person that makes choices, that takes responsibility for the choices. Instead, we say there is no self, there's a brain, and that brain isn't working if somebody does. I mean, I remember once had a patient who had sat in the rating room of my clinic and she had been raped and devastated by the rape. She had also been sexually abused as a child. Her life was a horror in so many ways. And she was a wonderful, wonderful person. And we were really starting to make some kind of progress in, in getting her to understand that what was done to her was not her fault, that she really was the victim. And that as a victim, she was now victimizing herself and if she could stop victimizing herself, if she could change that part of the story, she could really get on with her life, go back to school, and do all kinds of great things for her own children. Uh, and she was coming along, and she was sitting in the waiting room, and she read an article that all p people with mental illness are, are uh, biologically not responsible. And one of the things were somebody who rapes. And she came in, and she was off. Her, she was out of her mind. She said, "You mean I take responsibility for my life, and I come here to talk about my craziness? And some guy who raped me is not responsible because he has a brain chemical problem, and he deserves or he needs a pill." And it took me a couple of months to work that through. Uh, at the same time, alienating myself more and more from the clinic because I demanded that those pamphlets be removed. And from from the and the pamphlets were never going to be removed, and if you looked at the back of the pamphlets, they were all sponsored by the drug companies, all sponsored by the drug companies, and the psychiatrists, of course, fought like hell. Uh, I mean, and one of the psychiatrists once said to me, "How could you do psychotherapy and listen to these crazy people day after day?" He says, "I just sit and I write a prescription." I, this is not a story I'm making up. You, you believe me, don't you, Barry? This is what he said. He was going to write prescriptions, and he couldn't I've understand. Only, huh? I went to a psychiatrist one time. He gave me 
Lexapro? Yes. Um, kind of the equivalent to Prozac. Yes, it's it's a, it's a brand. I was on it six months, and it definitely changed my outlook, uh, my mental position. But I finally decided that I could do this by myself, and and I said I'm not going to be on this drug the rest of my life. And I stopped taking it after about six months. And you were know, you able to get uh, off? Yeah. Oh, good, because they're very addictive, those drugs. You're told they're not not addictive, but they're terribly, terribly addictive. Um, I could send people to a website called Paxilprogress. I think it's org. If anybody wants it, I can give it to them. I have it on my computer, in which they have about 25,000 people that, that come through this website any given moment struggling to get off Lexapro or Prozac or some of those other drugs that... Uh, that they've been on that, uh, you know, may help because it may, may actually make you feel different, may make, make you feel better. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, don't really change the way you live your life. Don't, don't change the underlying story except to tell you that you don't have a story to tell, that this is all a brain problem. And the evidence is that uh, this is not a brain problem. These things are not a brain problem. Despair, hopelessness, uh, come out of the events of our lives. They're the programming, if you will, that we've experienced. They are not brain problems. No one's ever been able to demonstrate it, and I don't think anybody ever will. So, uh, maybe we need another show on the self, Barry, because once I get on this topic of, of, of the, the destruction of the self in the American uh, scientific community and how so many people uh, don't see the growth of the self, the, 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 the psychological meaning of self as what should be the core of their attention. Um, how love experience, the experience of love transforms the self. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I've said this before. I know I've said it before. Uh, love is that experience in which the person I love is as important to me, that, that their self, their soul, their body, and their health and everything else is as important to me as mine is to myself, to me. And when I experience that I am being loved, I can see the concern, the affection, the, 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 the feeling in the face of those who look at me with love, who treat me with love, that it's an innate respect, uh, and that myself is precious to them. And that experience is to me one of the most powerful growth-inducing experiences that a human being can have. And lacking that, the, the self goes in a very different direction. Maybe the brain goes in a different direction as well. But uh, the idea that our children need drugs rather than love, structure, uh, dignity, respect, proper discipline is an idea that just taking over the land. And when it does, I don't know what will be left here. I can't even imagine what will be left here because uh, unless there's a backlash, unless people stand up and say, uh, I won't accept this. You demonstrate to me that there's something wrong with my child's brain before we go mucking around and altering that brain. And if you want to have a preventative program, have a program, a voluntary program, 
that helps people parent better, make more money. I ever tell you the story? I told you the story, I think, last week, the woman who came in on a Friday afternoon at the clinic, and she was anxious and depressed. And uh, I asked her what was going on, and she said, I have no money, and my husband has left me, and I don't get welfare till Tuesday, and I have no money for milk or food for my babies, my children. Started to cry. As I looked and I said, gee, I'm supposed to refer her now to the psychiatrist because she's certainly anxious. She's certainly depressed. But I said to her, you're going to get this money on Tuesday? She said, yes. And I opened my wallet and I gave her $20. I would have given her more, but I only had a $20 bill and then enough money that I wanted to keep on me, you know, something happened on the way home. Gave her $20 and she left. And my colleagues, oh, she was a junkie. She was a drug addict. You got taken. Uh, and I said, maybe. You can't, I don't know. But I couldn't sit there and look at this lady crying and say she has a psychiatric problem when she's desperate about putting bread and milk in the, her, her children's mouths until she gets her welfare check on Tuesday. And Tuesday, I walked out of my office for a second, and there she was. And she said, God bless you. She gave me $20. I never saw her again. And to this day, I say, look how easy it was for me to cure her of her mental illness. All it took was $20, right? <laughs> really cheap. And, and that's what many families need. <laughs> they need a break. They need to win the damn lottery. Uh, they, they need a turn, if you will, of, of, of events that have been grinding them down. And often what they also need is a change of the story, uh, you know, to change those stories that the self doesn't take responsibility for growth for its own actions. Uh, stories that say, I'm the monster and I'm no good, I'm the victim, and uh, since nobody ever gave me anything, I don't have to give anybody else anything. And, uh, you know, you have to hurt before you, you know, before you get hurt, uh, all of these very difficult stories that make people unpleasant, make interactions difficult and dangerous and unpleasant. Larry? Uh, yes. Um, I think one of the most destructive statements that I hear people say quite frequently is, well, that's just me. That's the way I am, and yes. if you don't like it, tough. Yes, I agree. I agree. Yes, as if somehow you're carved in stone. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, and that's, by the way, you know, listen, that's a nice justification for saying I like the way I am and screw you. Um, and then hopefully you can avoid that individual. But, you know, the difficulty is if that's your mother or your father or your sister or your brother, then you have something really to contend with. You really do. Every bartender will tell you, that uh, he learns very early as a bartender the phrase, pour me, pour me a drink. Isn't that a good one? Isn't that a good one? Yeah. All these people hanging out in the bar and getting themselves soused because of self-pity. Uh, when I work with people, I used to work with people with self-pity, I said, let me be sorry for you. You don't be sorry for you. Uh, because it, it's, that's, again, a damning emotion. And, and at the core of all of these serious so-called psychological problems is the idea, this is how I am, this is my nature. And this then gets really 
uh, made real by the, the by the whole philosophy that it's your brain and you can't do anything about how your brain is is, is shaped, except you know to uh, to pour chemicals into it. Well, I don't know. That's that's to me about it. I feel like I've said what I want to say. I don't know how many people. I don't. It's hard to tell. Nobody's calling in. That's why I'm glad you're here. Uh, if anybody's there and you want to call in, you want to say something, you want to add to this. Um, let's see. I have a couple of notes here. False self and real self. Uh, there is no real self except which we experience as real. One of the great cop-outs uh, that people use that that really have to confront is the idea that uh, somebody can be cruel and nasty to everybody around them but feel that their real inner self is kind and sweet and gentle. And then you have to wonder, which is the real self, the one that the world sees constantly or the one that the individual doesn't act upon uh, that stays hidden away as a kind of a, uh, a blanket, as a kind of a, uh, a sop to the guilt that may exist for what they're doing to other people. Um, Larry, have you, Go ahead. Have, have you seen the movie Yes with uh, Jim Carrey? Which one? It's called Yes. I don't, remember, I don't know if I saw it. I tend to see Jim Carrey movies, but I don't know if I saw that one. Well, this movie is about a guy who is kind of always negative. He's always going around saying no, and he's a banker. And he... You know, somebody comes to him for money, and and he always stamps it disapproved. You know, on his on his form, and um, and just one day, some guy, I guess, motivates him to go to this seminar called the Yes Seminar, and and um, and this seminar is all about saying yes, learning to say yes to everything. So, like all movies, they are extreme in one way or the other, but. So every time he is presented with an opportunity of saying yes or no, he says yes, even though it's very strange for him. Right. And it leads to some really engaging scenes and some really great things happening to him. And at first when he says yes, he sees that it's, oh, why did I say yes? You know, I'm in big trouble now. But in the end, it all turns out, to be really good you know he right. meets the love of his life he you know he, he ends up getting promoted he gives out all these quote bad loans and it turns out that all these people that he gave loans to pay back their money the unprecedented rates of payback and return on the on these uh, loans that the bank did and so on uh, and and it's it's really a great movie and right. i think it's such a good example of self because right. He literally changed his self. Yes. He changed who he was. Right. And right. and and just what he did. You have experienced something very different by saying yes. Right. And in, instead of going through life, basically always being a, a naysayer, always being a negative person, um, you know, it all comes back to a lot of these self-help books are about positive attitudes and so on, and. And really, if you've lost that, if you've lost the ability to have a positive attitude, if you if you allow circumstances to drag you down to the point where you have nothing left of you, the self, then you 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 really have nothing. 
You have not. And, I agree with you. And, and like, you know, Phyllis had this, a friend of hers commit suicide. Now, here was a lady that, um, according to Phyllis, she had no financial problems. She had two daughters. She had a grand, at least one grandchild. She had uh, a career. She was a, uh, a nurse. Uh-huh. And she chose to commit suicide. Yeah, to end and herself. To end herself. Yes. Because, herself. She, because the image of herself had degraded to the point where she didn't feel that there was anything left. Right, right. And right. that's very, very sad. Yes, it's sad. You see, the problem I have with it is always the individuals responsible for that, but they always get a lot of help one way or the other. It takes, you know, when I looked at all the kids I've ever worked with who really grew up to be very disturbed, it was almost always they had a lot of help being degraded. It wasn't simply they just said no because it was no. Uh, You know, we have three seconds remaining. Do we stay on the air after this is off? We do. It says show is on but not streaming. What does that mean? That means that the show is no longer live, but it is still being recorded. Oh, okay. But anyway, I'm going to have to close it off anyway. Uh, okay. I think this is en- we can do this endlessly because it really is an endless story. Um, okay. I'll see you, talk to you Wednesday. Okay. And uh, we'll do our show. All right. The other one. And I thank you again for being here, Barry. Oh, no problem. And anybody else who is here? Always uh, informative. Huh? We did, we did have a couple of listeners for sure. I see uh, the Democratic Communist on, uh, on our uh, chat room. Oh, okay. Thank, thank them for joining us. Yeah, let me see. I put my chat on because I figured out how to make it small, but not how to use it. <laughs> I am so challenged. I am so challenged. Oh, Democratic. That's I like that. There's no yeah. slope. Um, uh, lots of lot. I'm always weary of psychiatrists. These people try. That's what scares me. I didn't even take t- Tylenol. I suggest to stay in rehab. Some controlled sleeping pills and erotica. Very good. All right. Okay. All right. I'll talk take to care. you later. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye.